Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of The ISO with myself, Dan Dickow, and SB Live on the Believe Podcast Network. Today's conversation is with somebody, quite frankly, I haven't spoke to in a long time. I'm uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. We had a chance to talk uh, for a bit before we hit the record button. Uh, somebody who um, was a very good player back in the Seattle area in high school, the 98th player of the year in the state, um, bounced around a little bit in college, had some promise, and due to some unforeseen circumstances a lot of people would say he didn't reach his potential on the basketball court after talking with him a little bit beforehand I'm pretty impressed and I think he's reaching his potential as a human being and I'm, I'm pleased and I'm glad to welcome Doug Wren from O'Day currently living in the Seattle area Doug very nice to reconnect what's what is life like for you now in Seattle because I understand you're you're completing a degree and you're figuring out the true path that you want to take within the teaching world. Right now, I just finished up summer quarter at the University of Washington. I um, sociology degree, and I go back um, uh, September 30th. I'll finish up in fall, uh, finish up for the fall, December. And then from there, I plan on going to the interdisciplinary PhD program, focusing on three disciplines, which are we talked about earlier, sociology international law and competitive uh, comparative religion. And from there, you know, I've been teaching uh, law and civics and uh, history and nationality for, I want to say around six years now, but I really dove into it around 11, about 11, 10 to 11 years ago. Just the law and everything. Fascinating. I always really respect and admire anybody who wants to get into teaching, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, elementary school or a high school coach that wants to, to continue to, to be connected to a game that they love, whether it's football, basketball, but, uh, baseball. I, I'm always impressed with that. Right now, due to the current situation of the pandemic, my wife is homeschooling. Her patience is off the charts. <laughs> Mine is yes, daily, yes. but it's not great. Yes. What, what has given you that passion to want to continue your education after you know bouncing around in college uh, and then attract uh, people now good question um i want to say this so as a young man you don't i always knew what education was and the purpose for education but it was skewed because you had to fit that with 
your athletic prowess. And so it seemed to be that would take a lot more focus than that would, well, you put more focus on that where everybody would. That was the most important thing, you know what I mean, was basketball and sports. Or education was kind of secondary. And so you go to these schools. I went to, I went to University of Connecticut and then University of Washington. They're almost tailored to fit your basketball schedule. And so you never really get a chance to develop as a man or a young man to really see what you want to go into. Uh, later on in life, I look, I fell in love with law. I fell in love with the, uh, how do you say, the administration of law and uh, what law it really is. And so it just kind of like took me by storm and, and I was, I've been teaching and self-taught. Yeah. And then I said, decided, hey, let me go back to school so I can get a, get this transmitting document. So now everybody, so now everything is verifiable. You can just go on and say, look, that's Dr. Rennell right there. So I, you know, you just, um, I, I always thought this, Dan, I always said to myself, yeah, basketball was good. I love basketball, but I knew that uh, that wasn't going to be what I was, that wasn't going to be it for me. I always wanted to do something that was going to establish, I wanted basketball to establish something, establish my life or, you know, take me to places, but I always knew that I was going to do more than that. I didn't want to just be known as a basketball player. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about the word that you used law and we'll talk about that later, but I uh, want to first get into some of the basketball stuff. Uh, yes. You know, you were somebody who state player of the year in 1998. In 97. Oh, in 97. So I look, I won. So after we won state championship, they named me to a player of the year. And then 98, I was named Gatorade player. Of the year. You know, they have like three or four different players of the years. So, yes. <laughs> so two times state player of the year. Yeah. Put that on, put that on my name. <laughs> well, I, I could show you. I've got the 97 Gatorade player of the year in my office here. Oh, see, so you got the 97. 98, so I guess we went back to back on it. So yes, yes. See, look at that. Both were Huskies at one point, so we both yes. get uh, uh, bonus points in the state of Washington, I guess. Yes, we do. When you look back at your high school experience, you went to O'Day. Um, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, you had a tremendous amount of success. Yes. Um, was there any one coach that really shaped you or helped guide you at a young age? Because, quite frankly, you kind of had some ups and downs uh, from what I remember in the classroom, uh, as well as some things off the court. Who was That's the thing. I mean, in the classroom, I never really had up and, up and downs. I think so. What you're speaking about is me uh, when I left uh, – when I left O'Day and I didn't go, so let's go to Washington. I purposely failed a calculus class. So if I'm in calculus, then yeah, that, that, that was part of the story. I remember you. Were yes. And something happened. And yeah, I purposely failed a calculus class so I can get out my letter of intent to University of Washington. So I was advised by uh, people at Adidas to, if I wanted to get out my letter of intent, the only way I can get out of it if I failed X and mind you, think about that. Multi-million dollar corporations are advising me to fail a class. As an 18-year-old high school student? 17. 17. Yeah, so they're advising me to fail a class so I can get out my letter of intent. And that was because, one of the reasons uh, why is because my father was taking, he was taking um, proceeds from different people. And mind you, me and my father weren't, he wasn't in my life. So it was like, how would he be able to do that? And, and so it kind of made me feel like, okay, well, look, maybe I should go. And... And maybe I really wanted to go to the University of Washington, but it's like 
after that. And then it's like the media scrutiny, just like how you, how, how you mean, how you, uh, the narrative, because I've never had a problem with grades, but now, but since now I failed that class, all of a sudden I have a problem with grades. And, and <laughs> that's know? why I asked the question in the way. No, it's, no, it's a beautiful, no, it's a beautiful look, man. It's beautifully stated because it's like, you know, that's the narrative and I've never had a chance to speak about it. And so if you're hearing it from a paper, if you're hearing it from a homeboy, if you're hearing it from somebody who's six times removed from the situation, it's going to come in different, you know, it's going to, uh, the information is going to come differently. You know what I mean? It's going to come, it's not going to be accurate. You know what I mean? So that, that's okay. But now we have a chance to correct that. And you're giving me that platform, that opportunity to correct that. So I appreciate that. Yeah, without a doubt. So as we mentioned there, you were set to go to UW. What yes. You just mentioned, you just, you decided to not pass a calculus class. Yes. Go back to mm. the East Coast to go to a prep school and reopen yes. your recruitment. Oh gosh, that was what like was it about UConn because I know Jim Calhoun is a tremendous coach. But what was it about UConn uh, that made you mm. want to go there? Hmm. Another good question. That we're opening up, so let's let's be honest. Okay, I did not ever want to go to University of Connecticut. It was I was kind of pushed there. This is where you have to go, type thing. And so when you have handlers, you don't really have a. Uh, and at that point, you just I just kind of wanted to get out of Seattle because there was a lot of stuff going on in Seattle. And so I got to uh, uh, a very close uh, a friend, uh, a very close person at the time. And uh, his name was Gary Charles for Adidas. You know what I mean? He, uh, he coached the Long Island Panthers. And so, you know, I talked to him and I talked to another guy out of Fresno named Darren Matsubaro. You know what I mean? And so we talking. It was just like, okay, which way I'm gonna go? Where am I gonna go with this? Because you have a lot of different things. Now, mind you, then you have this narrative being formed, but then you're still talking to NBA coaches and they're saying everything's all good. And, you know, so you're just trying to do the best thing, even though sometimes the best thing is just to say no. And I learned that later on in life, but by that time, there's been so many tracks have been laid. It's like, you know, when now when you start putting your foot down and your voice is heard, everybody's almost scattering around like, no, don't do it to me. Why do you, why are you upset? It's like, no, I want my life to go like this. I want to do this. I'm not doing that. So when I went to Connecticut, it was just like, kind of like, okay, well, I'm here. This is where you're going to go. It's a great coach. So I didn't know anything about uh, uh, Jim Cohn. That's the case I would have went to Syracuse because I actually had a relationship with Boheim. So I would talk to Boheim. I never talked to Coach Calhoun, you know what I mean, uh, prior to that. So everybody was recruiting me, and I remember Coach Lato calling me when I was in Seattle, uh, junior in Seattle, and I'm like, oh, you're too far away, you know what I mean? But then, so I just cut him off immediately. But then I remember talking to Coach Boheim and just, like, really liking him. And then they had Jason Hart down the street out of California. And so he called me up all the time. And then we had Tony Bland, who I was really close to at the time. He called me, we're going to Syracuse. So it's like, maybe. And, but you know, I just never, never materialized like that. But that was one of the schools I really wanted to go to Syracuse, but just never materialized. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting to hear yeah. about the, the description of your recruitment. You know, that first part about UW, but then the, the UConn commitment and, and the deciding to go there. Yeah. Now that you're in a position where, 
you're getting your PhD and you're getting into teaching and, and you're, you want to impact and mentor youth when you get the opportunity. What would your message be to a, a young student athlete who has so many opportunities now like you had, you know, 20 years or so ago? That's a good question. Uh, first and foremost, no, you have to have different messages. You know, it has to be because, mind you, it might be one message to a young man or to a young woman who comes from a single parent household. It might be another message for a young man or young woman who comes from a two parent household. And I mean, and so those are two different distinct messages that you'll give because one has half the teaching than the other one does, you know? I mean, so one's going to have to try to fill a void where the other one has all voids filled. Yeah, I mean, so me, I had, I was the one that only had, I only had half the void filled. So I was always looking for a, a father figure. So I would tell everybody, don't look for a father figure, look in the mirror. And so my mother had to tell me that after my, uh, say after my year with Lorenzo Romar, because I told her, I said, look, she didn't want me to go back to school. She said, your time is time for you to go. Just go. He's not, he can't help you. And my thought was, well, look, I want to go to school. I want to, I want to impact University of Washington. I owe it to University of Washington. Cause when I left, we left a lot of recruits out there. And like, as you know, there was a lot of recruits. And at that point, you know, Washington was picking up. And so a lot of people did not go to University of Washington because I did not go. I remember talking to Curtis Borchardt. He was like, Doug, if you wouldn't went to UW, I would have stayed. I would have went. And so it's like, gosh, I could have had CB. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, I could have had CB with me. And then, you know, I, and I talked to the players like, Doug, if you would, I would have. So it made me then stay. Not knowing, and then me telling my mother, like, you know, he looks like me. I want to be, I think he can lead me to where I want to be led, to where I, where I you know, because at that point I was thinking about coaching. I was thinking about what can I do for University of Washington at this age? That's how I was thinking back then. What can I do? What kind of an impact can I have for that school? So I understand what the alumni is around here, especially from Seattle. I understand that. I always did. And then my mother was like, she's told me, she said, stop looking for a figure and start looking in the mirror. And so that really, that's something that I always saw. So that's to be the first thing I would tell somebody. Don't look for a father figure. Always look in the mirror. If that wasn't if that was a void. Now, somebody else, they had that, I'd tell them something else. Sure. You know, that makes sense? No, without a doubt, it does. You know, and I think, um, you know, the point you make about two different messages dependent on family structure or, yes. or their previous experiences is very important. It's something that maybe is overlooked by a lot of, of people when they just start giving advice without knowing the background of how that advice is going to be received because of what you may, may just mentioned, one parent, two parent, et cetera. Um, you st when you left UConn and you came back mm -hmm. to UW, you committed to Bob Bender. Uh, yes. I played for Bob Bender for two years before I transferred. And then everything looked like you're on a fast track back yes. to what everybody's goal is, and that's to make it the NBA. I believe it was your sophomore year. You averaged nearly 20 points a game. Yes. Uh, you kind of had your bounce back. You had your mojo back. Um, and yeah. I, I can imagine you were thinking about leaving after that year, but then Lorenzo Romar comes in, a little bit of a disappointing year. Um, yes, big time. What was the – what were the, the memories or the frustrations like going from such a great sophomore year to a junior year where, you know, 
maybe underperformed in your eyes? It was, I would say it was a big disconnect. I felt like, uh, let me see. Okay. Yeah. The, well, you, you, you and I, we, we both know, cause we both had this, we both had a, a situation where we had, we went to, we committed to one school. Me, my sister, but we committed to one school, we went to another. And then after we transferred and went to another school. All right. But in all ways, there's always promises being made. There's always something being said. There's something being told. There's something that, why? And so with Lorenzo, I remember, it's like, so it kind of, that's two, two quick stories. So I remember when he first came and his first time he was, uh, his whole thing, he uh, was trying to recruit me. But however, there's a backstory to that. The backstory was that Quinn Snyder was supposed to come. And so I was, I was invested with Linda, Barbara Hedges. And so Barbara told me, she gave me the five coaches that, and she's like, look, these are the five I'm looking at, you pick one. And so it's Quinn Snyder, uh, Dan Munson, uh, from St. John's, uh, who's the brother from St. John's, uh, uh, Jarvis, Mike Jarvis, uh, Walmart was even on a five. So he wasn't even on the five. There's two other, uh, two other men. I, I can't it, it hose me right now. But I said, Quinn, boom, that's my guy. That's who I want. So I'm in connection with Quinn. And like I'm trying to, I'm. We talked. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm, I'm passing, I'm passing messages through somebody to him that if you come, I'm staying. And so the message got back to me that, no, like, look, he wants to come, but he cannot come because of his relationship with Coach Bender, because they're really close. So he felt like him coming would be like a slight to Coach B. Next thing you know, I get a, like, Lorenzo. And so I found out, like, and I'm like, Lorenzo? Like, you know, I don't really know him. I don't really know him at all. And, I, and then I go back to, so I'm a, I'm a researcher. I go back and I see how many letters did he send me when I was in high school? Because I'd tell you if that guy was inter interested in you or not. And at that time, he was at St. Louis. And I saw one, mind you, I went through all the thousands and thousands of letters I had. I'm talking about I had thousands of letters. I found one letter from him. And I, that, so that kind of rose a little bit of suspicion right there. But when we talked, you know, he told me a lot of things. He told me different things. You know what I mean? But then after the, it was crazy, we talked. And then it was right after his media conference, he brings us into the locker room and he starts talking about cancers on the team and cancers on the team. And he's looking dead at me. And I'm like, and all my teammates are looking at me like, why is he looking at you? Like, you're not the cancer. Like, you know, everybody on my team knows, like, look, I've, I've seen a lot. So I was always the one to bring us together, take us out, being a, you know, I look, I understood it from a professional level. I've been around NBA players since I was 15 years old. So I always handled it like professional. Look, we need clothes. I'm going to get you that. We need, that's how we did it. And so when he was making these uh, comments and I asked him, he's like, I wasn't talking about you. I wasn't talking about you. I was just like, but you're looking right at me. <laughs> you're saying these things, man. And it's like, what's in it? And I think he kind of, kind of tore him back because during this press conference, all the media was looking towards me. And asking me questions like during this press conference. So I knew it had to be like, you know, they're asking them questions about me and then they're all lined up. And then next they find out I'm there. All the media just turns and all the cameras in my face and me and my teammates are right there. And I'm just like, and I knew that kind of struck a chord with him. Cause it's like, let me tell you right now, Dan, like, and I know you know this 
the coaches and trainers are some of the most, I don't, they are really, really uh, headstrong and egotistical. They like, you know, they are, they have, look, they're the biggest slinger in the room right there. You know what I mean? They got, so, so we have to know that they're never wrong. And so anytime, and that's the one thing is like, I was raised to ask questions. Why am I doing this? Why do you want me to do this specifically? And then what? And then what? And then what? Because I'm trying to calculate things in my mind to see the next play, the next play, the next play. Because as a basketball player, you want to think five plays ahead. And so a lot of coaches don't want you to ask. At that time, when we were growing up, they didn't want you to ask questions. It was just like run through the wall or not. And so, you know, when you ask questions, it's like, you know, when the coaches that let me ask questions, they love me because they know I'm going to run through the wall. But the ones that were hiding things, because I felt like that, you know, Sometimes you just, oh, that's, that's Douglas Rand. Oh, I heard he has, like, he's, he's the greatest basketball player, but he, I'm going to have to break him. I heard he has attitude. So it was almost like people trying to break me, people like trying to break that wild stallion and stuff. And they don't understand, like, look, I'm not the wild stallion, man. Look, I want to ride with you. Come on, let's go. But you're not going to just ride me into a wall and say, hey, look, that felt good. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's so uh, – so true some of the comments you make about the evolution of coaching since yes. we were young men in, in college. There is a lot more, I don't want to call it a collaborative effort, but I think there's a bigger picture effort by a lot of coaches um, to, to look at everything as opposed to just my way, my way, my way. Yeah. Don't, you're done. Let's get you out. But the other thing that's, that was really interesting that, that you made a comment on, and, and I want to hear your take, and, and I found this to be 100% true for Seattle basketball, is you said you were 15 years old, or, or I think that's the age you said, and you were working out and playing with, with grown men. Yes. yes. I, I've yes. always found the Seattle basketball scene and the culture to be as tight-knit as any place that mm. I've ever been. I grew up yeah. in the Portland area, and it was okay. It was good but not all the guys would come back and put runs together in the summers. Mm. Um, I would drive up a lot of times when I was in high school to go work out with some of the Seattle area guys. Yes. Um, and all these years later, I've gotten to know Jamal. I talked to Will Conroy occasionally. Obviously I was teammates with Brandon Roy. Yes. There's a, there's a unique bond with Seattle basketball. There is. I don't know, keep in on your listening. take, where does that come from mm. and how proud of you are you to be a part of that brotherhood? Uh, you know what's crazy? I want to actually say I'm the found, look, I'm the foundation of that. I would say that, and I think everybody else, I think uh, my contemporaries, they will say I'm the foundation of that, of that, uh, of this community, of this national community. Um, you understand, like, when we were in, it wasn't like that, okay? Um, it was really hard to even get any type of exposure from Washington when I was coming up. And when we were coming up, yeah. we were literally the closest thing to Alaska. Okay. And so we just look at the map. I mean, we just look at the map and we'll see any, all players, like I can name the best player to come out of North Dakota, South Dakota, Mike Miller. Can you name me any other player? I can name the best player to come out of Colorado. You know what I mean? People say, it's uh, Chachi Billup. Can you name me any other players? You know what I mean? Now, mind you, I mean, Idaho, can you name me one? But now we get to Washington. And when did this start coming off? It started coming off in 97, 98. Now all of a sudden, you know, you have Jamal, you have all these, all these guys rolling off, all these guys, to the point where it's like, it's the, uh, it is basically, I say it's the metropolitan capital basketball. It's, it's the basketball capital of, 
at all, I think, because I think we have the most uh, basketball players per capita in the NBA, and that's Seattle, just a little Seattle, Washington, you know what I mean, that little area. It's impressive. I mean, you yeah. know, you could go a little bit further back and throw Doug Christie. Yeah, but, so they, but you're Donnie, right. I mean, Doug Christie, but Donnie Marshall, he's from Federal Way. He don't yeah. count. I guess if you go right in the heart of Seattle. Yeah, he don't count. And Doug Christie, you understand? So Doug, when he came out, he was just, that was an anomaly. JT came out with anomalies. Before that, you have a, a, you have a Big Buddha, James Edwards and stuff. That was 20 years before. Yeah. And so, you know, thanks. So in that little area, you don't really have, see, even when JT, JT was, people thought that was a, it was an accident, even him going to, to go into Arizona. Like he, got, he gets on a BCI tournament late in the game. And then Arizona sees him play, and they're like, we want you. He already committed to Washington. You know what I mean? So for him to get there, but JT was a national. But you wouldn't know that, you know, because of how the beats, how the tournaments were set up. You know, it was by one particular man. And it was like, it seemed like all the players at Eastside were always getting, where all the players from Seattle were on the second-tier teams, okay, for a long time. You know what I mean? So when I was coming up, I don't know if you hear me. When I was coming up, I had to I had to get through all that stuff. I had to maneuver through all that, and I didn't I didn't play for a, uh, I didn't play for the Ed Pebbles out here. I didn't play for the uh, Rotary Rotary was in the round. I think it was a CAY. I didn't play for that. I played for a man named Sean Connors with Seattle Nike and it was Seattle United at first. And so you know, and that and I remember Jamal because Jamal didn't play for those teams either. You know what I mean? We didn't have that opportunity because we were kind of looked at as second-tier players because of uh, our financial burdens at the time. So, yeah. Well, some of those guys from from Seattle that you were a part of that explosion of talent, uh, I mean, again, it's tremendous. Spencer Hawes, Will Conroy, Brandon Roy, yeah. Murray, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, yeah. We can try football, but we're going to miss somebody and, and slight somebody. Yeah, don't want to do that. Don't yeah, want to do that. Sure. We get, we're very – we're finicky out here about that. So, if you – look, I, I'll say it like this, Dan. Like, you ask anybody in Seattle, who's your top five? Who's your top five basketball? Look, <laughs> we know who the top five are. You know what I mean? You don't want to – you don't – what you don't want to do is you don't want to get upset of where they rank you in the top five. You know what I mean? Because no matter what, I'm going to be in your top five. So it's like – and that and that itself tells a lot. And that in itself tells the respect of what I, what I accomplished, what I did, whether or not the narrative with the people that saw me, they're like, man, I, I, you haven't seen anything like me since. And that's like – I was just – I literally just stopped the phone with Will Conroy – uh, uh, before we started this, he was like saying, I was just talking to Jamal because they sent me a couple of things. He's like, I, we have not seen a player like you since. And he was like, you're just like, man, I really appreciate that. And so it's good that, you know, you get roses before you're in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, hearing some of the uh, the excitement and, and hearing your, your reminiscing of the memories, and hopefully I'm bringing back some good memories for you. You are. Uh, yeah, you are. You know, as we get older, you know, I can look back at some of the, the frustrations and disappointments of my career and be like, hey, that was part of my, that was my fault. Or yes. I didn't take advantage of an opportunity. You left after your junior year to pursue the NBA. Um, yes. and things didn't quite work out. You did play professional basketball in a number of leagues for a number of years. Yes. And 
many people say that out of Seattle, you're the, the best player never to make it to the NBA. And I don't mean that as a slight. Yeah. But I would say I'm the best player ever to come. Look, to me personally, I'm not going to, but I'm the most talented player ever to come out of the state of Washington. Like talent and from Seattle. I think people would actually say that. Like when you just say what I was doing at that age, because I don't think there was anybody who was 15, 14, 15, getting all states and everything like that. So I was all state from 15 all the way through my senior year. I made first, first or second team all state honors. And in Seattle, coming from O'Day High School, and then, like, you know, let's you understand that Seattle was like, there's a, it wasn't the same. It's like, I don't want to, there was a lot of covert things going on out here. When I say covert, and it's like, I don't, I want to articulate it the right way. Uh, 20 years ago, it's like, you know, you didn't really like, you didn't really want that young, brash man at a Catholic school dunking on you and talking smack to you. You know what I mean? So it's like, I got you to, you know? And so now, if I would do that now, it'd be like, he's the best thing ever. But when I was doing it then, it was so out of the norm. You know what I mean? And it really wasn't, but it was, you know? And so it kind of puts that little stigma on you. But it's like, you know, I like, now I can look back and say, you know, would I have done anything differently? Funny. I think I like, you know what, I would, I would, I would have talked to people more. I would have opened up a little bit more. I would have told you what was going on in my personal life. I would have told my coaches I was homeless my whole sophomore year of high school when I was at O'Day. You know what I mean? I would have told them that. I would have told them I was sleeping on the streets and stuff and still going to a private school, watching people pull up with Benzes and Hummers and stuff. So think about the mental effect that had on me where I couldn't even find a place to go to that night. But yet I have my, teammate rolling up in the you know what I mean and I'm not telling them anything and so I think that that I probably would I would have opened up about a lot more but at that time being a man or thinking I was a man I just I felt like I just had to keep on pressing on you know what I mean I think that's what uh confused a lot of people about me they thought I was uh acting belligerent or acting uh immature but in in, in essence I was just trying to I was trying to study what's going on. I was just going to press on no matter what. I wasn't going to talk about it. I wasn't going to, you know what I mean? Just going to press on. And I think that like, kind of confuses people. You know what I mean? Now, if I were to come out and say, look, I was I had anxiety. I was depressed, you know, to be welcomed. Back then, if you were to say that, you know, they look at you differently. And so, you know, I, especially in the community I grew up in. So you just had to keep on pressing on. That's what I did. You know, that's, uh, that's so true because there's, there's been a change in times and social media would have, yeah. you would have been a viral sensation um, with the highlight plays that you made. And, you know, you talk about kind of maybe the anxiety or some of the things that you dealt with work. And yeah, I remember I was similar age as you, you could never have talked about that. Now, you know, thankfully that uh, it, it's, it's a way people are aware of it. They're present. People are willing to help and talk yeah. about it. Um, and for you to, to be open and candid and honest about that, uh, hopefully anybody listening to this can really respect that. And maybe if they need help, you know, they know that there's places they can go to get that help. Not only just help, but I look, I just look, young man, I don't, look, I don't know if I was, you don't, you never know if you're suffering from anything, anxiety, depression, anything. 
I know with the pressure, it was like, I didn't feel pressure. I felt weird. I felt it weird that at one point, nobody wanted to help me. Then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to help me. You know what I mean? Now all of a sudden, one point, now all of a sudden, you have agents calling you, trying to give you $100,000, $200,000. You know what I mean? You have people trying to fly you all around the world. And it was like, look, you guys would need to help me and my mama, my mother out when we were hungry. But now that I can dribble, now you guys, because I've been dribbling this basketball, I've been good at this. Now you guys are taking notice now. Now you guys want to throw everything to me. And so it made me very standoffish because it made me question who you really are because I was a young man that needed your help before then and you guys they didn't care. Now that I can do so, I can play some basketball. And now that, and I've been playing basketball in front of you for years. But now that somebody else told you how good I was, now all of a sudden, you know what I mean, Dan? After your time uh, at UW, like I mentioned, you, you, you declare for the draft, you start playing overseas because the NBA wasn't quite um, prevent, providing an opportunity. Oh, look, look, I, look, you know what happened? It's like there's a couple things that happened. So I actually got called to go to the NBA. Like I had a bunch of workouts afterwards after being, after being overseas for three years. But I decided, you know, I'm just going to stay overseas. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want, I didn't, you didn't want me then. Why do you want me now? You know what I mean? But you guys did want me then. But then it's like, if, for me, it's like there was a lot of rumors out there about me that were, that were started and generated by certain people. You know what I mean? To the point where it's just like, you know, when I actually would talk to them, they're like, that's not, you ain't, you ain't, you're nothing like what I thought. You're nothing like what I've been told. It's like, what have you been told? And then it opens up like, well, you know, the coach at University of Washington said this about you and said this is like, wow, that's that's deep. You know what I mean? And it kind of like, you know, kind of like, you know, like put like this, Dan. But I, I go, I go to work out. So I have an exit interview with uh with Lorenzo. We have an exit interview. And he tells me he does not want me to come back. Simple. He says, look, I don't I don't think it's good for you to come back. You know what I mean? After, like, you know, and he said a couple other things, too, and mind you. And he told me, he said, look, Doug, you did everything I asked you to do. I was hard on you, but I don't think, I think for what we're trying to do here, what I want to do, it's just not going to work out. And I said to him, you know what, that's okay, but I wish you would have told me that a year beforehand because I, I told him, I said, because you knew a year before, prior to this that you weren't, it wasn't going to work out between you, me and you. Because you knew, I told him, like, cause, I said, because you knew you weren't going to work out with me. You do that. Instead, you brought me back here and you wasted a year of my life basically berating me in front of my teammates, in a sense. And that's all I got. Every single day, I got berated in front of my teammates to the point where it's like, you know, like everybody, some people thought I was going to put hands on them to some of the things he would say to me. And it was like, I would never do that. It's just like, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, you, it, it drove like some of the things he would say to me. Like you don't tell a uh, you don't tell a young man that you got too much nigga in you. I don't even know what that means. And you look like me. So when I see when I say I never experienced I never experienced bigotry. Never experienced bigotry that or, or people call it racism. I never experienced that. And that's like until I experienced I experienced bigotry from somebody that looks just like me. At that point, it's like you're calling me a nigga. It's like I don't even use that word. Yeah. You know what I mean, and so it's like he cut. So this was like all year, and all the media knew about it. 
When I say all the media, they knew about it. And they always, Dan, you know, because you have friends in the, in the media. And at that age, since uh, been in the highest, been in the, uh, been, I say, been in fanfare since I was 14, 15 years old. And so these guys have been reporting, reporting about me for like the last six years. So they have, we have relationships. You develop relationships with different uh, sports writers. And they would see it. They would see like, you know, and they would say things like, what's going on with this? And I'd be like, you know, and my thought was I wanted to be a pro. So a pro just keeps his head down, keeps on working. He doesn't say any slick thing about the coach to the media. He doesn't go, you know what I mean? He doesn't go on it. Like at that point, we don't, we don't go on social media because we didn't have that and, and write things about you. You don't do that. I, I didn't grow up like that. I, my coach was Philip Lumpkin. You know what I mean? Phil Lumpkin, the hardest dude ever. You don't do that. And so I learned, I knew that part. But in essence, everybody wanted me to do it. It was weird. It was like they wanted me to say something. They wanted me to tell what was going on. I just wouldn't do it. That's, that's so hard for a young player to kind of work through those um, differences with a coach, especially in, in a situation where it's your hometown school, like yeah. it was for you. You wanted uh, to make it work. Um, yeah. And then the things that you talk about, you know, that, that's one of the hard things about being at a hometown school. You yes. Former friends, coaches, family members, hey, do this, do that. Where at, this, at the end of the day, you're trying uh, to do what's best for Doug Rent. And the funny thing is now is you go from, you know, the, what it sounds like, you know, the end times at University of Washington for you. You go into a career that has uncertainties. Yes. You kind of come full circle now where you're, you're working to get your PhD from University yes. of Washington. Yes. You're, you're looking to have an impact in teaching both at the college and, and at the youth level. Um, but a, a word that you mentioned to me, I think it was before we started recording as well as then maybe early in the conversation that we did record was, was the word law. And you had a couple um, incidents where things happened. Yes. Um, you had to go to, to jail for a bit. Prison. What prison? I went to prison. <laughs> like, let's get that low, Dan. Let's get, I went to a prison for a crime I did not commit. I went to prison, brother. And that, that's, that, that's for somebody who's never been in that situation. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what it's like. Um, and, and I can only imagine in knowing some of, not all of, but some of the circumstances of what happened. Um, if you're comfortable, if you want to share, please share what. what nah, look, I would love this. Let's talk Not about everybody it. Everybody gets to kind of really share it because unfortunately, one thing gets written or said. Yes. That becomes the word that you used, law, in other people's minds. Yes, 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 yes. So that, look, so I actually wrote a, uh, a hypothetical case and I used that for a class, one of my classes this quarter, last quarter, and a hypothetical case was that case. And so basically I picked it apart and I did the appeal and everything on it. And it was like, it was a very fabulous thing, but it was, it, it rehatched a lot of things. You know what I mean? It rehatched a lot of things. And then let's talk about that. So, you know, look, oh, I know I said, you know, it was, that was a difficult situation and in a very, very difficult time because at that point you would want people who really know you. And the people who really knew me, they came forward. Kevin Burlson's, you know what I mean? The, the Will Conroy's, even like even Jamal. Jamal did uh, Jamal did things for me. 
You know what I mean? But I always appreciate and I love him for it. Will did things from I always appreciate and I love him for it. The Burlsons, Kevin, Alvin, Nate, Lindell, Big Al, uh, Mama Val did tremendous things for me. They just they stood by me. And where and so you see them standing by me and then the world crumbling <laughs> around me. So that was the hardest thing. You know what I mean? Because I didn't commit a crime. You know what I mean? I trusted in the system and it didn't seem like the system, it seemed like the whole time I looked, okay, for instance, when I got, when I, when I was arrested, I got brought down to the police station. He, the, one of the guys, he, I remember to the day, he was like, oh, Douglas Red, I know you, you're the basketball player, great basketball player. Didn't Lorenzo Romar kick you out for the same type of attitude? Oh, wow. So that's the first thing that came out that people, he kicked you off for having a bad attitude, road rage. I can see it happening. Jesus. So this is what I was, you know what I mean? I mean, think about that. And it's like, look, here's my phone. Here's the person I was talking to. They actually called him up. They were like, yeah, he's talking to me on the phone the whole time. Where's my pistol at? I have, I'm a registered gun owner. If my car's in the shop the whole day and I have to go pick up my car, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it behoove you to go talk to the people who have my car to see if my gun was in the car? <laughs> and they'll tell you, you have no gun in the car. If I'm walking to, to pick up my car, wouldn't it behoove you to go talk to my roommate? When she picked me up when I was walking, she would tell you I didn't have a pistol on me. So it's like, where did this magical pistol come from? And that's when I learned it was like, man, you know, it's not, because before that, people understand, prior to that date, I was pulled over 17 times. 17 times without an incident, going home, going from the east side, because I lived in, a, I had a condo downtown Bellevue. So I was pulled over 17 times. You know what I mean? And then, them pulling me over and saying, hey, Doug, how you doing? You got your pistol on you today? All right, now, hey, hey, let me see it. Like, what do I do? Oh, we're just checking on you, you know, you got a, with no incident. And so that's what gave them probable cause. To say, well, maybe he did do something, maybe he did. And then the people, and the crazy thing is, leave it like this, my mother actually ran into one of the people that said that. She ran into her at uh, somewhere, and then the young lady said, look, I know, mind you, she said this on the stand. She said, I, he, I've never seen him in my life. She said, I understand. I've never seen him in my life. I told the police that at the time, and I'm telling you guys now, i never seen him in my life. My mom talked to her, and she was like, look, it's like, I know who he was. It's Douglas Wren. My, my brother is a big fan. She said, my, my family has disowned me. She said, my family disowned me. And how she said it, she said, because I know he didn't do anything. The police just, you know, the police pushed us, pushed us, pushed us. And so I, everything's different. My life has changed. So think about that. So I, me hearing that it didn't bring any solace to me. Like there's no solace. It didn't bring any, uh, oh, I told you so. No, because nobody would ever know that. Nobody ever, would ever know I was pulled over 17 times without incident. Nobody ever know that when I got, I just got back from Korea playing basketball and I had $300,000 in my, uh, $300,000 cash on me that I couldn't put in the bank because all my banks, so I was carrying cash around me at times, and the police would pull me over, and it's like, you know, I didn't want all that cash on me. I didn't never, it's like, I couldn't, I was trying to put it in the banks, and so I was putting in the banks the whole time. So people would be, so many different, there's so many different levels to it, and it's just like, man, just me going in there, and this is what, and this is where I really started, I said, okay, wow, because I remember his name is Jim Rogers, and he's now, and everybody else, got, everybody from that case got elevated. 
Jim Rogers is now the uh, presiding judge, and he said something to that, that always stood to me, and this is why I started uh, wanting to speak and learning Latin, Morris Latin. He said, ignorance of the law is no excuse, and excuses no one, Mr. Rand. And I'm like, huh? Ignorance of the law is no excuse, and it excuses no one. So Douglas, basically, what he's saying is, look, you might not have done anything, and I don't think you have. But since you don't know that you didn't do anything, I can't excuse you from what's going to happen right now. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, and it excuses no one. And it dropped me. I said, wow. So how many other people have got, have got thrown through this system and this guy ringed out? You know what I mean? And it's like I never it, – it, that, that hurt me the most right there, Dan, because it's like I would, I would never have done that. And then nobody and the people that know me, they knew I didn't do it. And then it's like nobody, we had Lorenzo, like Lorenzo, I say, he stepped up for people who were, who actually did things and he stepped up and he just stood quiet. And then weeks later, I break my leg, I go to prison. So I go to prison after, uh, after all kinds of, uh, you know, it was all kinds of dreams, it was, it was crazy. And so I go to prison, I come out, I break my leg in half, and I get a call from one of my uh, a friend at the time, and he says that Lorenzo wants to meet up with me. And I was so reluctant to do it. And I ended up doing it because, he, like he said, Lorenzo had a lot of stuff on his heart. So let's go meet him. And that's when he apologized to me. He said, look, I, 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 look, I know this, and I should have been there for you. And so that probably cost you $100 million with contracts. He said that to me. And then he offered me a hundred dollars cash, point zero 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 one percent of what, <laughs> and he tried to give it to me, and I said, Lorenzo, man, I don't know what to do about you, brother. Yeah, you know I mean, and so that was like that was look that I think that's what hurt the most because it's like, man, you knew, you knew, you know me, and like all you, and then the fact, you know, uh, I had Quincy Wilder. Um, on a podcast conversation a month or so ago. And he was in a situation similar to yours where he spent uh, time in prison. And he said he learned an unbelievable amount because he got into books, he got into learning, he's come yeah. out, he's changed his life. What, what was it, about, was there a turning point when you were in prison that something happened in your mind or there was a mentor in, in prison that, um, kind of helped you redirect your, your, your passions or, or your interests and your energies or where did, where did the desire to now get out and, and get, become a, an influence in a positive way that you're doing now? That's a, you know what? I have none of that was happening for me in prison. Every single day I wanted, I was upset because I shouldn't have been there. So every single day I was, I was, no, it wasn't happening to me. Like, like, you know what, and I understand with that, but I was so upset and I was so mad that my life has been stolen away. Like, it's like, how dare you steal my life away? And you guys know I shouldn't be in here. You understand? So when I went to prison, it was, it was big time. Like, it, everybody knew I was coming. And so from the guards and everybody, and it's like, you know, and I'm like in my neighborhood, my, like, you know, I'm got a lot of people from my neighborhoods, like, you know, who are in prison. And then, you know, the affiliates, uh, my affiliations with uh, 
with my neighborhood and people, it's like, so I had to, it was different for me in there. So we're different. I think the coldest thing ever to me was people try, this is what I knew was like, people think I, they try to kill me over, uh, I almost, they, I almost, I'm tell you, I almost got, they, people wanted to kill me over cleaning toilets. It's how sick that was. So this guy go from living in a multi-million dollar place, you know what I mean, and having my life how it was to now people trying to kill me over being able to, I was what they call the, uh, the tear uh, porter. And so I ran the whole, uh, I ran the whole tier. Uh, I ran the whole block. So I, I was saying, so when I say the whole block, I ran the whole thing and I would get everybody's stuff together. The only reason why I was in that position because it was like, you know, affiliation things. And so it was like, oh, Doug's here, you got that. And so I was in a place where I wasn't supposed to be at before a month or two, and they had me there for six months. So mind you, in this place, you have, you control all the commercial aspects. So the job I had, I controlled all the commercial aspects. But understand there's commercial aspects and there's politics in prison too. You have to really understand that. There's a lot of commerce going on. So at that point, that's why I controlled all the commercial aspects. So I'm getting, one day I'm getting, I have to, I have to get everybody's stuff together for each tier. So I'm that whole tier. So I'm getting their stuff together. And the door is behind me, but this door never closes down. The door stays open because that's where the movement comes. And that's where the guards so I mean, all of a sudden I hear this door close. And I know that's not supposed to happen. All right. And so mind you, these are uh two young men who were of European descent and they were affiliated with uh European uh one talk gang situation, whatever you want to call it. We won't say that you know what I mean. So and they're like they said, man, we're tired of your black ass. It's like this, we're tired of your black ass running shit. Like you just run everything. You just think, because mind you, I had, at one point, I had all, everybody out working. <laughs> Even the guards are like, good. Only you can get everybody out working and doing the thing and handling their business. And mind you, it's, it's, it's a color thing in there too. And so it's like, so everybody, I had everybody, but I had everybody here like, and, but they never had that many people that, of my hue out at the same time working. So the guards are like nervous that they weren't. They're like, man, we ain't never seen nothing like this, Douglas. I like it, but I'm not sure. It was kind of, it was really amazing. And so it's amazing how what I was able to do there and like, you know, and so these guys, they come in there and they're like, man, we're tired of you running things. And so they begin to, because we have a one jumpsuit on, it's like a onesie. And so you can rip this thing, you tie it up. And so they're taking it out and they're tying their arms up. And you do that when you're about to work out or you're about to go working on somebody in a sense. And so they're both doing that to me. Mind you, Dan, I'm like, look, people understand, I'm a square bear. I am, I am what you call a teacher pet nerd. I like, you know, I like, like, I like long walks on the beach. I like reading science fiction novels, you know, type guy. So this is a little bit different for me, having two men trying to kill me. Walking in, I'm like, I'm a guy that's like very prissy. You know, I use, uh, how do you say, baby wipes are in all my bathrooms, you know? So, <laughs> so this is all different for me, man. And so having these men kind of try to do something to me about cleaning toilets. Think about that, about cleaning freaking toilets, bro. And so whatever happened, happened at that time. 
you know, if something happened, I left unscathed. They did not. I took a lot of anger out on those guys for the fact that I had to be in there. At that point, I was probably like, I'm, I'm six seven, but I, I was lifting weights, so I was probably like 275, something like that, but you didn't really see it because, you know what I mean, so when I struck, they are like, and so, you know, it just had to happen, so it went down. And that, but that was, nah, it's not, it's, not, it's not an emotional thing, but it almost is because when you're thinking about that stuff and you're thinking about the mindset you're in because it's like, I was so upset that it's like I shouldn't be here and you guys are trying to jump me about shitting material. Clean up. It's like how, what kind of life? I went to a private school, man. I went to O'Day High School. Like, you can't just go to that school. You know what I mean? I went to, look, I've been recruited by the best coaches. I played, I played for Hall of Famers. I've traveled the world. I speak languages. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a son. I'm a, I'm a brother. I have people who love me and look at them. People are trying to fight me and they want to hurt me and do harm to me over toilets. What the hell am I doing here? So that was my thing every single day. I was just mad, mad, and mad. And so when I got out, I took that same, I took that same approach. You know what I mean? I wasn't, it didn't get any better for me. It's like, you guys want to see a, a, I felt like you guys crazy. You guys want a bad guy. Well, look, I'm going to show you what a bad guy can be. I'm going to show you. So I was moving differently there. I did things differently. I, you know, and that's going to be, I, I ended up, I think it's well talked about. I, I met a young woman who was a prosecuting attorney at the time and we had, we did our thing. We did some things that were not advantageous for me and it was not in the right spectrum. I wasn't right spectrum. I was angry. I was angry at all the people who I felt I held up and they let me down. I was angry at the basketball community because, you know, I feel like they could have been there more for me because I know I was there for everybody who ever had any, any situation I was there for. I mean, I was mad at, uh, I was mad at myself for thinking that I'm different. You know what I mean? It's like, cause I, cause I learned really fast that it's like, yeah, you dribble a basketball, you ain't, that don't mean nothing. And it almost puts a bigger target on you in a sense. Cause I felt like a lot of that stuff was out of jealousy. There's a lot of jealousy there. There's a lot of jealousy. And you, you, Dan, you feel it. And you know, you know, you can walk in a room somewhere, especially when we we're younger. You know what I mean? And you walk somewhere and you just feel like you guys don't even know me, but you guys have a problem with me because I played basketball. Like what the hell? You know what I mean? Or because you know I mean, a young lady might like you because you know you play. And I was always weird about a young lady liking me because it's like you like me because I play basketball. Do you like me for myself? I mean, I know I'm a handsome man, but you know what? You never know. Being a basketball player, you never know if you're handsome. I mean, look at Odin Polonies. You never know if you're <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dan. I'm sorry. Look, look. That's me being lighthearted and joking. I'm sorry. But you know, you never know. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> no, you're, you're very true. Um, you know, as a young student athlete who kind of has the world at their hands um, and you haven't gone through experiences in the world yet to really know how to deal and handle things. Um, you know, I want to commend you for, for, you know, just the, the truth that you've spoke with, um, the passion that you've shared stories with. You know, I think you have a tremendous story, Doug. I think you've had a tremendous rebirth. Um, and it sounds like, 
there's a tremendous future. Um, and, and I really I'm looking forward that, to, uh, I really, I really do. I really watch that. I really appreciate that. I, I really appreciate you. Uh, I really appreciate you actually calling me up and taking the time to do this and, and those kind, kind words. I really do. It means a lot because it means that you know that you're on. I'm saying one place, one time I was in a bad place. I was like, you know, I didn't like anybody. I didn't like anybody, and it was all about my business. It's all about business and business and doing my business. And the business I was doing was not, was not how do you say, applicable to the lifestyle that I wanted or what I wanted to be remembered as. You know what I mean? And hopefully, like, you know, one day we'll sit down and we'll, uh, we'll go into that stuff because that's a whole different, it's layers. And so, mind you, for needing out crap out of that and actually find out who I am and find out the, uh, the legacy I have, like overall, you have to know better to do better. And so now I know who I am. So I know I have a responsibility to the world to uplift humanity, not to, how do you say, deplete humanity. And I think we all, we all have that responsibility. You know what I mean, so you just want to do better, man, because I've seen it all. Like I've been to the, I've been to heaven's gates. And I've been to hell, I've been inside hell's belly. And so I, I've seen it all. I was in the belly of the beast. I was in, you know, literally in the belly of the beast. And I've seen it all. And I've been to heaven's gates. I've seen it all. And I, and I know there's like, man, and I know the people who are in the belly of the beast, I know they don't want to be there. You know what I mean? I know a lot of people don't want to be there. They just don't know how to get out. They don't know how to better themselves. And I just, I always reflected on my discipline. That's one thing I always say about O'Day High School. It's like as much as me and O'Day don't really, I can always rely on the discipline that uh, Catholicism brought me. It brought me structure and discipline. It brought me, it's like mass. You stand up, you sit down, you stand up, you sit down, but just discipline. You pray a certain way. You do your Hail Marys. You do your Our Fathers. You, it's, it's discipline. You know what I mean? And so that's what it taught me. So I can always go back to that. And then when I found Islam, I found the peace. So now I'm working with peace. And so now it gives me peace into every single thing. And so that's it. So for you to say that, man, it's like, man, that's, that's a beautiful thing. I, I guess my peace is stolen, brother. I appreciate that. Well, what yeah. You, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed reconnecting a little bit through text message and, and now having a chance right. to have this conversation. Uh, Doug, I wish you no, nothing but the best. Uh, hopefully when this pandemic is done and, and my college basketball travels at some point bring me over to Seattle. I, I'd love to, to get together for lunch or something, but uh, for myself and SB Live Sports, we thank you for joining the ISO podcast today. Thank you for having me, Dan. I really appreciate you. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.